0: APU. American Public University is proud to present the Everyday Scholar. Hello, my name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and today we're talking to Jennifer Fish Ferguson, Assistant Faculty of English in the School of Arts and Humanities. And our conversation today is about intersectionality. And welcome, Jennifer.
1: Hi, Bjorn. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, definitely. This is a very interesting topic. It's, it's very now and I don't mean to disregard that or anything like that. But it's something that I think people need to understand and to uh, get behind, which can help a lot of people understand uh, current issues, just their fellow neighbor, just so many different things. And so I'm gonna go and jump into the first question is, can you explain what is meant by the intersection of culture and identity?
1: So I I think what's going to help people most is actually understanding what culture is and how it affects identity. So in the very simplest of terms, culture is a word for the way of life that groups people, meaning the way they do things. So excellence of taste in the fine arts and humanities is known as high culture. And having an integrated pattern of human knowledge Uh, belief and behavior, outlooks and attitudes starts to inform a society. So as we start to look at the ideas of the intersection of culture and identity, you also have to understand what an intersection is. And a lot of people have never really heard of it or don't understand it. Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a law professor and a social theorist, actually first coined, coined the term in 1989 in her paper. Uh, demarginalizing the intersection of race and sex. And what she said about intersectionality is intersectionality allows us to understand the ways that multiple forms of disadvantage can cause obstacles that might not be understood. And so that sounds like a lot of huge and heavy topics, and it kind of is. But what it starts to look at is the different identities that you possess. So since you're talking to me, I get to use myself as a great example. So I'm an assistant professor. i also a mother. I'm a daughter. I'm an aunt. Um, so I have all these different forms of identity that inform people who they think I am in that moment and how that starts to inform your culture is how you feel accepted in different activities that you do. So one of my biggest examples of this, and and I had to laugh about it a little bit, I was at a writer's conference. And when you get at writer's conference, and especially if it's a romance writer's conference, which I love, it's a great group of people there, They tend to have a little bit of a pushback if you teach writing or if you teach English. Um, and, And I understand that some people get nervous. They think they're going to be judged because it's what I do for a living. So I smiled and went and introduced myself and they asked what I did for a living. And I was like, I teach Zumba, which is also true. I wasn't lying. I am a Zumba instructor. But I figured it would be a little more welcoming and we would have better conversations. And we did until lunchtime. And then they were offering cheesecake for dessert and it does weird things to me, Said So I asked for a fruit plate and all of a sudden everybody looked at me. They're like, oh, so the athletic one doesn't eat cheesecake. (laughs) So by trying to fit in, I actually ostracized myself in a way that I never saw coming and I thought it was funny. But it's that kind of intersections. Um, However, what we find is that... Misunderstanding of how people have different identities through different cultures makes it hard for people to exist in spaces comfortably. For example, when I teach in a class, um, what I have found over my years of teaching is I always have black females come to me not as a professor at all. They come to me for life uh, advice, relationship advice, scholarly advice sometimes, but they see me, they see representation and they figure I'm a safe space to talk to, which is awesome. And that's great. However, where it becomes a disadvantage is when you are teaching and you're writing and trying to publish and you're trying to do things to help advance your career, Having this extra pot of students come to you to um, give them advice and offer them solace and shelter is not something necessarily that the dean sees. So it's not something that I can necessarily write up an annual review that, oh, I have all these students that come and talk to me that I, you know, mentor. And so in some regards, my annual review may look a little lackluster, like I'm not doing as much because that is not something that the dean see that comes onto my plate, if that makes sense.
0: No, and that totally makes sense. And uh, one of the things you said early on was a certain component of a person that's not understood by others, I believe. Was that correct? Correct. And I think that is one of uh, the things about inter- intersectionality that really had a hit home with me is we all live in the bodies we have. And we're born that way, we have nothing to do with it. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, we all were born into a household and to a locality and to a culture which then responds to those bodies. And we have nothing to do again with the bodies, but the culture around us is the culmination of everything that everybody else has done throughout their history and the past. And so, you know, the far past might seem like um, a distant memory, but it, it, it's still living today. And so I'm always amazed how people are completely unable to understand the experiences, the lived experiences of others. And to me, that's one of the things about inter- intersectionality that, it, that that is so important is just don't judge, just listen, and to see what people have lived because whatever you've lived, actually might not be universal. <laughs> and sometimes people don't realize that their their lived experiences is unique to them, uh, unique to sometimes their culture, is sometimes privileged, sometimes tragic. I mean, all these different things that are wrapped up in culture, and then also wrapped up in intersectionality.
1: Absolutely. Some of the best experiences that I've had where. I forget because my, my favorite saying is you think as you do. So automatically you're situated with how you think because you kind of assume that everybody should think like you because that's how you think. Um, but I come from an adoptive family. So I have a sister who is from South Korea. I have two other sisters that were born in different places uh, around the U.S., and um, Me and one sister are both biracial. My other sister has um, physical disabilities. So we came from kind of a very melting pot family. But coming back to you think as you do, my next youngest sister, who's two years younger than me, and I were out at a party, because that's what you do when you're 20. And this guy came up to me and I'd known him. And he's like, man, I'm totally in love with your best friend. And... I had to like close my mouth and then understand he didn't understand she was my sister because she was Korean and we look absolutely nothing alike. He didn't know that we were raised up together. But that was one of the moments that really drove home to me that this experience that I have is nobody else's. And that's when I started looking into it a little bit more of how do you function in these spaces? um, And even more so, how do you function in spaces that don't necessarily want your brown body, but they want your intellect. (laughs) That was the start of my learning about looking into intersectionality and why it's so important for people to understand. Sometimes the best thing you can do is close your mouth and listen before offering anything else up.
0: Oh, completely. And I think in the current political environment and just talking, you know, we're recording here in December of 2020. So the election occurred and nobody's listening to each other. And honestly, politically, nobody's listened to each other for a full generation. And it's it's particularly heartbreaking. And even if you go back to political history, people oftentimes don't listen to each other anyways, but luckily in the US, things typically get done. And when I say typically get done, the roads work. The water is mostly clean. Here in Michigan, so the water is mostly clean.
1: <laughs> Close enough to Flint to know that's not always true.
0: Yeah, that's why I always have a qualitative, mostly, you know, and so, and that's one of the, the good things of the US, things mostly get done. Like the political corruption is hidden, luckily. <laughs> um, and the average person doesn't have to suffer too much, but always the caveat, there are many, many people who who then do suffer. And so this leads me to the second question is, what are some of the ethics that arise from identity and Of course, ethics is always a very tricky term because ethics, the cultural norms, ethical norms change depending on the generation. And they vary depending on who you are, where you are, and what color you are.
1: Right. And a lot of times it not only comes down to color, but it comes down to the frameworks of times and places and the labels that are associated with them. Um, So (laughs) identity is so fluid is the best term I have for it because nobody sees you the same way. So I have many identities. Again, it comes back to is my identity being professor? Is my identity being mother? Is my identity being instructor? And I would hope that I carry the same set of values, ethics and morals through each of those positions, through various methods of uh, practice, but it also depends on place because I can't always have a relaxed attitude if I am in teaching in a physical building that I can if I'm teaching online. And that's just the um, understanding of safety. Of safety that's around, of safety of students that I am there responsible for. But understanding even rhetorical identities makes the interesting idea of your identity being set into a place a little stronger. And so I think one of the ideas that I carry with identity is Something that I've said to my kids often, um, and my children are biracial as well, they're very, very light-skinned, and their identity is as white young men, until I walk in the room and they call me mom. And all of a sudden, their identity morphs. It absolutely 100% morphs. And I've seen it, and thankfully, most adults are really good about covering shock up, but parent-teacher conferences where you're there, um, it, it changes. It and intrinsically, what ends up happening, especially with parent-peacher conferences, they end up learning that I'm an educator. So all of a sudden, it doesn't matter what their cultural identity is anymore. What they understand is, oh, your mom's an educator. You can't actually get away with anything. She's going to be on top of it. But it's that notion of identity that I think comes back to our first question with intersectionality. It's why people don't listen. People have a very firmly rooted sense of their identity Of their culture, of their ancestry, and of their place. And some people are not willing to give up that very rooted notion of this is who my lineage is. This is how I've been informed to be. And I'm not going to give that up. And a part of that is, it's comfortable, You, you get real comfortable being in this spot and knowing who you are. And the real challenge of allowing yourself to grow and experience doesn't always come without a lot of hard work and change. And one of the bigger things as well, and 2020 is terrible for this, and I'm very disappointed, it has zapped travel down to nothing. And a lot of times i found the people that are most resistant to change have never ever traveled. And not just like, oh, they've never gone to Europe, but like going to another state hasn't really been in the purview. Um, So identity is these ideas that you carry within yourself of knowing who you are. And honestly, as an adopted person, that sense of identity has always been very different for me because I've understood that I am adopted. Um, I chose not to pursue who my birth parents were and then had my sense of identity rocked one more time where I was in downtown Detroit, um, and they had casinos built a while ago as to revitalize the city, and I was there with my husband for our anniversary, and an older lady walked up to me, stopped me dead in the face, and looked at me, she's like, "I know you're not my granddaughter." she's like, but you're you're definitely my family, and so then I'm freaking out. I'm like, "What?" <laughs> So my sense of identity then, again, pushed me back into, right, but you're an adopted child. So yeah, you you actually do have a biological family out there somewhere running around. But it's those unsettling moments that I think actually allow us to grow a little bit and explore this identity of, I'm not this one person who does this one thing. I'm actually very multifaceted and learning how to be interested in ex- examine other cultures as a a point of they're not only valid, they're relevant. And understanding this new set of ways that people do things is the only way you do grow and you do open your mind to experiencing new things instead of staying small, staying sheltered, and quite frankly, I think being afraid because you might find that the glory that you think is your family lineage may not be as glorious as it is common. And most people just don't want to be common.
0: No, it's true. And one of the things that you said just really hit home with me is some people don't want to leave wherever they are. And uh, because it's comfortable. And and, and honestly, For humans to be consistent and probably grow, they need comfort, honestly. They they need to have a job that's consistent. They need to have a relationship that's consistent. They need to have safety that's consistent. But one of the the, the things that allows you to grow is then is interacting with people whom are not like you. And that can mean a lot of different things. It could literally just mean that, you know, for one thing, you're a Democrat and you're interacting with a Republican. And, you know, you're the same skin. Whatever. Just different ideas. It's great. Uh, But then... There's other ways in which you're interacting with people who are from different parts of the country. You're interacting with people who um, are a different color. You're interacting with people whom are from different countries, and you instantly then have to go beyond what you know and what you believe and try to understand them. I was like, well, it's not that simple, but you know, people love to, to really talk about simplistic answers to really complex things. And just one of the real, real uh, disappointments in American history is really coming to grips with, um, with slavery and then generations of not addressing that problem.
1: My personal take on that, again, comes to a comfort level and where people actually see themselves and not wanting to be just a common person, just someone. And I think part of that comes from the failure to accurately teach history. And so, so many conversations that I've had with truly wonderful people, and they were conversations and they weren't heated arguments, um, but talking about how plenty of American families that were in the South who hold so tightly to this notion of, you know, being... Superior and they had not been enslaved people. No, but your family still was picking cotton for the plantation owner. You were just making a couple of nickels a day instead of having been enslaved. And I think part of that stubbornness is people holding on to the idea of the American dream. If you work hard enough, you can be in the top, you can be the billionaire, you can have all of these things. And Not being able to see that the generational wealth that those in the top have had and have kept and have managed to propagate, you know, with tax payouts, they don't have the generational wealth any more than the poor Black families, any more than the poor Asian families. You're actually in the same boat, but they have a hard time reckoning and reconciling that because they've been sold this dream of, you can do better. And I think that's the insidious thing about systematic racism that people don't talk about and maybe don't actually understand. And a lot of times I'll hear people say, oh, well, the system's broken. No, the system works exactly how the system was designed to work. What's broken is that people don't understand That when things are set up against women, against minorities, against people who don't tick certain boxes, that the people who benefit from those systems will never seek to end it because they're comfortable with it. So easy example of being pulled over driving while Black. People say it all the time. I've experienced it. And my adoptive mother, who is white, who is my mom... That that's the only mom I have. Um, she has never, ever experienced that. And I had to sit her down as an adult in my 30s and explain, no, this is a real thing. And she's like, well, I was like, mom, it happened to me. You know, I said it happened like six months ago. And the cop came to my door hand on holster, hand on holster. <laughs> I was like, what I was doing is I was going to a holiday party in a very wealthy, very white, affluent neighborhood. And he flat out told me, he's like, we don't see your kind here. Showed him the invitation and everything. But, and and not that my mother is a horrible person at all. Absolutely not. She um, quite frankly, open enough to adopt children from all over the globe and definitely wants equality for everything. But I think that comes back to our earlier conversation where if you don't experience it, somehow it's not real. It's it's something that happens to somebody who is intrinsically doing something wrong. So if you're misbehaving, of course, you're being called out on. But the concept that just killed her was her daughter was going to a faculty Christmas party that she had been invited to and still went through the scare of a cop coming up to her window hand on holster.
0: That's reality. And that's, I think, a lot of people uh, don't realize that. Um, I've never been stopped. Uh, I've been stopped once because... It was um, a holiday, and people usually drink on that holiday. And I swerved a little, and the cop said, Hey, you swerved. I'm like, I actually wasn't drinking. So, uh, you know, he he let me go. And I stopped one other time when um, my license plate was out of, you know, it was expired. Besides that, no, I've never been stopped. Um, It's one of the things that I wrote about in one of my early blog posts, in which I, you know, described my, (laughs) my blog was called Anonymous Bjorn because I quickly realized that one of the blessings. And one of the privileges that I have had in my life is that I'm anonymous, and although that that makes it sound like I'm not special, just like you're saying, people want to be special, but it, it has allowed me to navigate this world without ever being noticed, and that allows you to live, though. And unfortunately, you know, say if I was a black male, like you had said, just driving, you you're stopped while black, or if you're going into um, you know a business, people could be suspicious, and why? literally just because of the skin. And it really makes me think of a great story that I heard um, Eddie Glau Jr. say, Eddie Glau Jr., the very, very famous um, Princeton professor about his son being at a park, just doing a research a project. And some cops came by and said, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm just doing a research project. He, I think he was at Brown or something. And here, this highly regarded professor who has written such, such amazing books, got a call and he was just rocked that my son could have been shot because, as the son said, the cops came, what are you doing? The second cop behind him had his hand on his holster. And of course, my question is, I could easily as, say, a white male be like, why would? No, that, that doesn't happen. That's never happened to me. I, know, I don't know any of my friends who's that happened to. But then that discounts what actually happens with people. And so, you know, going back to understanding what 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 other people's lives are, it's just listening, listening to what they have gone through, and realizing that yes, this does happen. To follow up on the on the ethics of identity, one of the things I I'd like to tell people is, and and I got these stats from census, so the U.S. government census. Is let's see, income some uh, income summary of two thousand seventeen to two thousand eighteen is the white non-Hispanic, because of course the census had white as including Hispanic for many years. Uh, The uh, the median household income was about $70,000 for white non-Hispanic and for black was $40,000. So that is a difference of $30,000. And so when you talk about like a starting line in the game of life, so the black household is already 40% behind. And that's on average, that's taking the culmination of everybody out there (laughs) <laughs> and then um, this is where people are, you know. And then Hispanic was 51, Asian is 83. They're, the Asian population um, as a demographic is the most successful. And then in people in poverty, I think this is very fascinating, 2018, of course, everybody can go to census.go to look at these. Uh, the white people in poverty is 8.1% and the black is 20%. So if the black population is about 2.3 times more often in poverty, that will have real world consequences.
1: And I think part of part of the problem that people don't see necessarily, because again, they're not there, is when you have communities, um, and I'm going to use Buffalo, New York as an example. And I was just watching a small documentary on it, where they had had all the factories, they had a bunch of workers, and it got polluted, things kind of went out, and they've rebuilt it fairly successfully. It's a beautiful place to be. However, when you talk about Black families living in poverty, here's part of the reason why. 90% of their police force, so the taxes that the community payers that go to paying for the police force do not live in the community, which means they take all of the taxpayers' money, which helps schools, which helps hospitals, um, everything else, and they take it outside into a different community, and invest it in their very predominantly white communities, which then give, you know, the tax money to their students schools. So you're literally displacing the income that should support the schools and moving it out. And that's for retirement and pension and everything. And that's just one example of, yeah, you can come work in this place, and you have the advantage of having a a full time job, you have a salary, you have health care, but you take all that benefit and you leave it in a different area that is a little um, more comfortable for you, instead of the city saying, "Well, if you're going to be a cop here, you have to live here."
0: And that really uh, makes me think of Ferguson when that occurred, and was it Michael Brown? I apologize, I can't remember off the top of it. When Mike, when Michael Brown was was killed, and then the riots, uh, protests and then, <laughs> I, I guess you'd call them riots, occurred in Ferguson, a deeper dive of the Ferguson Police Department really showed that the it was predominantly white, which was policing a, a predominantly black community. And it's one of those things where that came about, and it's like, well, did you think it was going to be a perfect idyllic situation where all these white cops who don't live in Ferguson, as you were saying, come into an area like Ferguson and are policing. And one of the simple police reforms that's been, been floated around for a long time, has gotten a little more traction in 2020, is just like I said, have the people who live in their community, police their community. Simple. And, you know, one of my things, when it comes to police reform, and I've had a few, um, you know, former cops on the podcast where uh, there's a lot of pushback from police unions about everything. And so that's one of the obstacles
1: well they could start also by making it a four year degree <laughs> the the amount of education is is truly not there when you and that's not even a personal opinion that is looking at the training parameters globally globally the the most minimum education i believe is in germany and that's two years um but in the uk uh in japan it's four years although i will say um my relationship with my hometown police department is is good, partially because I'm a fiction author on the side, and I had questions that I needed answered that I was fairly certain if I put into Google that would have a SWAT team coming to my door. So I made it a point to meet with the chief of police and the fire chief to get some answers, and they thought it was hilarious. But I can say our our police department, the majority of people actually do live in our community, And not to say our community is perfect, but they're present, their kids go to school with my kids. And personally, I feel like there's less danger of a negative incident happening, because they know the people in their communities to an extent. Not to say that there's not going to be incidents happening. That's ridiculous. Humans are humans and emotions are emotions. But from my purview, knowing who the chief of police is, you know, seeing him out at football events or school events actually makes me feel better that I am now dealing with a person who sees me a little bit more as a person, not just, oh, here's some black woman that lives in the community.
0: Right. No, completely. And, you know, police reform. And again, like any topics, and especially this topic, it's so complex. It's so complex. And you know, the number one thing that has to happen is there has to be political action with this. But even political action, that's just not to be too pessimistic. That that doesn't do everything. It has to come from the community. And so the next question is, how does community inform identity? And how does intersection into new communities alter one's perception of identity?
1: So hopefully, if it's being done well, the community is showing you who is accepted within the bounds of community um or showing you who is not which is sometimes the harder place to be but having a robust community that accepts new ideas and is open enough to understand that one way of thing doing things is not okay so one of the reasons we picked the location we were at Is I grew up not far from here. So I was aware of what the community was. It is about a half an hour south of Flint. So having easier access to a larger city where there is a little more integration of culture was necessary for me. It wasn't just, oh, it'd be nice if it was there. It was necessary um, because representation does matter. I do need to see people who look like me, I do need to have conversations. But we wanted an area that I would feel safe raising my kids, knowing that they would have a a variety of classmates, um, not just racial, but class-wise, education-wise, learning things from different people. And that started my identity as, I guess, this little suburbanite person where, yep, I've left my door unlocked and not thought twice about it, (laughs) you know. Um, But that allowed me that to live in the identity that my home is a secure home. I don't worry about people breaking into our home. We don't have a huge crime statistic in the area. So that just brought me a level of comfort. Now, intersection, yes, I am in the handful of people of color and, um, you know, being from the not politically correct group that I am, I laugh with my girlfriends that we actually do make up the cultural identity of our area because um, one of our girls is Vietnamese, another one of my girlfriends is Mexican, another is Chilean. So we just kind of laugh like, oh, yep, here we represent all the culture, which is not in the least bit true, but (laughs) just friends having some fun. But it, it also does make me aware that things in this area are very much set up for white Christians in the area. I live in the land of a thousand churches, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But for the longest time, I'd look and be like, oh, here's a Catholic, here's Greek Orthodox, here's Methodist, here's free Methodist, here's Baptist. And it really made me wonder. And one of my girlfriends is atheist. I was like, how do you feel? being here, knowing that the understood norm, like the expectation really is when most people see you, they automatically assume you're a Christian. And she just, she, she kind of stared and she's like, we just don't really talk about it. And because I'm who I, I was like, well, don't you feel oppressed by that? Isn't that like weird that you can't just honestly say, you know, that's just not my thing she's like it really doesn't bother me everybody just assumes i am so i leave them in their assumption and i walk away i i I take it
0: knowing the truth no and those are all excellent observations today we're speaking with dr jennifer fish ferguson and we'll be right back after a short break
1: American Public University now offers doctoral degrees in global security and strategic intelligence. You'll be taught by highly experienced professionals and develop the critical thinking, analysis, and research skills needed to manage threats in today's complex global environment. Get valuable expertise from top practitioners in global security and strategic
0: intelligence. Apply now at study.apu.com. At and we are back with Dr. Jennifer Fish Ferguson. And, you know, I think for the people of that community whom say, you know, are white or adhere to some form of Christianity or whatnot, they oftentimes won't even think that they are the majority or that these are the norms that are projected out because it it, it, it is just part of them. And it's part of the community that they interact with all the time. And that's why intersectionality is so important is just for people to understand that whatever is normal to you is not normal to other people, and and I like that you brought up the religion thing because you know luckily we live in a in a time in a country where you don't have to adhere to the dominant form of religion. Now, whatever religion you are, go for it. I don't care. <laughs> um, but there, are, history of course is littered with countries where you had to conform to the dominant religion or else it could be a death sentence. I mean, literally. And so. It allows you to to navigate a world in a potentially different way, and and you know, and as you were talking about um, living in your area, and so I had an interesting, you know, experience of growing up the minority in a city in the U.S., but still being white. I didn't have the experience of being a minority in the U.S. I only had that experience in El Paso, which you know is a wonderful and vibrant city. And honestly, people get along. It's a really great place, although people will will oftentimes make fun of El Paso. And it's just one of those things that, you know, everybody should have that experience of living in a place where you are not the majority, or you should live in a place where even like your faith is not the majority. And it really forces you to look at things differently, to see how you interact, to see how you behave. So when you go back to where you are, you'll hopefully understand not only yourself, but other people. And again, be more open, be less judgmental. And I think, you know, like we've talked about, people just aren't, they're comfortable with whatever they have. And it's very difficult to just go beyond that.
1: I think there's a lot of like, fear. I, I keep coming back to people do not want to feel less than. And it's really hard to, I think, take that um, leap of faith as you will And go and see something different because, you know, you might not like it or you might decide, oh my gosh, they're doing so much better than I am. And then it feels like personally affronting. Um, But, you know, race or religion aside, um, especially since this podcast is audio and people don't get to see me. I've self-identified as a black woman. I cannot tell you how many times because of my name. And because of my speech, I I do not resonate with people as black until they see me. They're like, well, you know, of course, one of the most offensive things somebody can ever say is, well, you don't sound black. Okay. (laughs) Okay, well, I don't sound black to you. But you know, looking in the mirror, I sound like me. And maybe it's not always feeling less than it could be that actually people are really afraid to like go out and try something and accidentally offend somebody. I suppose if I'm very optimistic. That's how I'm looking at it. they're just afraid to be culturally inept. They have to understand that systematic racism isn't the wealthy areas that tend to be more white don't allow outlier area schools to come into them. That's not necessarily systematic racism. Systematic racism is having the minorities um, offered less money when they start a career. You know, having somebody, you know, come to look at, uh, let's say, lacrosse players, which get really great scholarships, but lacrosse is a highly specialized sport that usually shows up in private schools only. So, you know, kind of looking at how money is put out there, um, you know, one of the differences that COVID has taught. And... Because I'm a college professor and have college professor friends, oh, yeah, I am extremely, extremely privileged because when my child needed a tutor for algebra, I didn't have to, like, you know, wonder if I had enough money to buy a tutor, you know, how could I do this tutoring? I, I swapped services with a colleague and said, tutor my kid in algebra, I'll tutor yours in writing. And that's a privilege. And I understand that 150%. Um But I also took that knowledge and tagged my friend and said, here are these schools in Flint that I know these seniors are going to need some help. And so that allowed me to think, okay, at least I can now give back and do some virtually tutoring systems with these communities that do not have access. And I think that's kind of where the conversation needs to start happening is you may not understand all the ways that systemic racism shows up. But there is a it, there is a way to change. There is a way to make the playing field a little more even than to just kind of say, well, I can't do anything about it because they're like 90 million, you know, miles away from me and I can't do anything. I think people can make the change by asking some of the harder questions, by examining, you know do I have these practices that are uninformed, you know, and I'm not saying go rush out and try to make multicultural friendships and force them into your life. Um, But you can do things like take a class or goodness knows YouTube's out there everywhere. Look at a different culture, look at a different religion, look at something that kind of shakes you to the core a little bit. And it doesn't mean you lose your identity, it doesn't mean you lose your ethics, it doesn't mean you lose your culture, but what it does mean is you lose some of the biases that you might've firmly put into place about how other people do things.
0: I think so often people, and individuals too, but especially the media, they like to distill things down to very simple answers. The reality is that nothing is simple and there's very few simple answers. And even if like, you know, the answer was like, oh, let's just give everybody a bunch of money, that's not gonna fix everything. And so uh, with our last question is, you know, how do culture and community intersect? And we've talked about this a little more. Is there anything you'd, you'd want to add to that?
1: I think the big thing is, again, it comes back to having these intersections of, it's not just one blanket statement. So um, I go to our city council meetings, which I don't know if they're happy to see me or not, or if they just kind of sigh, because I bring things up. Um, but one of the things that they were revamping our downtown because they like to proudly say, "Well, we're you know we're a bedroom community." And at one point, I was like, "Well, why is that a good thing?" <laughs> They're like, well, "What do you mean?" I said, "A bedroom community means that everybody here goes elsewhere to work and then comes back here at night." I was like, "Don't you want a community where people want to be here? Like they want to do things and you know shop and have outings and whatnot." You know, and slowly actually, our community has started to transform into, oh, yeah, yeah. So I'm not going to take credit for that happening. I'm sure I was a voice in many. But you belong to your community under multiple IDs. You are a taxpayer, you are a resident, you hopefully are a voter. But, you know, if you have kids, you're also a parent and you are beholden unto those teachers to give them support in various different ways. You go to your religious centers and you interact there. You go to your local gyms and you get to interact there. So your identity continues to be fluid in different spaces. But hopefully, if community is done correctly, um, and I think it takes work, is you actually acknowledge the diversity that you have as a selling point. It's not just oh you know we have the land of churches which we do but the even looking at the positive of that yeah we're the land of churches but I'm pretty sure we cover almost every denomination plus we have I'm probably going to misinterpret and that's going to be a mosque Hindu mosque. I believe it's Hinduism. <laughs> I drive by it going to the gym. Um, but they're there. And I have never seen hateful graffiti. I've never seen any sort of like backlash for that being there. Um, and I know we have a very healthy Jewish population and I've not seen backlash against them. So it, it's diversity kind of done right in my mind of, okay, there are other religions and maybe they're not the dominant ones but they're not being hindered either. They're not being ostracized for being different. So, um, and lately we've, we've gotten a new Middle Eastern restaurant and a new Korean restaurant. Um, and I bring this out and some people are gonna be like, "Yes, yeah, so what? So the other thing we have are like 50 million diners <laughs> of Americana food. So I was extremely excited to see Middle Eastern food come in. So I didn't have to drive out and get it communities have to be open enough. And a lot of times, again, I think it's that fear that closed borders of we need to know that people who look like us, and people that represent our ideals are here. Instead of understanding, if you're going to have a bad person, it's not necessarily a skin color, that's a bad person. It's not necessarily an aberrant religion, that's a skin person. It's not a monetary thing that makes a bad person. It's somebody's particular situation that if most people probably had gone through the same thing, they might end up a bad person. And I think that's the first set of blinders that people really have to take off, is that if you don't understand Black culture and community, there are plenty of texts at this point that you can educate yourself. There are tons of videos that you can educate yourself. And so really, the call to action of anything would be educate yourself first. Really stop operating out of a place of fear and understand that everybody is intersectional. It's not just a black female thing. It can definitely be a white male thing. It could be a Chinese male thing. Everybody's got these intersections because we're not rooted in just one place. You grow, you learn, you explore, you do things. We have to have intersections. And I know some people kind of take it personally. Like They're like, well, it kind of excludes me. Well, To be honest, if I only intersected with people like me, I'd be a very lonely one person because nobody else is going to ever be directly just like me. So we've got to learn to embrace all these little micro differences that we have, but understand it leaves us so much more to look forward to because it leaves us open to trying anything.
0: And I completely agree because as a country, um, there's so much creativity and so much diversity here, diversity in many different ways, um, that that is the strength of the U.S. potentially. And it has been the strength uh, for a long time, but it could be even more. And, you know, if we just get to know our neighbors, which I always talk about, just get to know your neighbors, uh, oftentimes ignore the political machinations that are going on in D.C. because that's a different beast. But the people around you, and just get to know them, uh, just like we talked. Understand who they are, where they're from. And number one, don't be judgmental. Nothing about judgment ever helps unless you're an actual judge. <laughs> um, but you know, on the personal level, just get to know each other. And I always say there's no better way to get to know somebody uh, than through food and through music. And you know, if recently uh, a restaurant opened up that for Michigan might have been rare, but now it's there. Go eat that food, talk to the owners, listen to the music, and you'll understand them a little more. You might strike up a conversation that will completely surprise you. And at the same time, you know, get to know like, how did you make it to where you are? A lot of people arrive in a place um, haphazardly, and then they make the best of it that they can. But at the same time, uh, we're all part of the same community. And we're all part of uh, communities that intersect. And so we need to make our communities the best possible communities, you know, that we can.
1: My favorite story about my own personal growth, which is short. I learned to be a much better person when my first child hit two. <laughs> Toddlers are erratic. For people who've raised them, you know. But one time, I, re- I remember it vivid is the day he just was he was furious with me and his little baby indignation. And I was like, what do you want? And he's like, Stow. I'm like, sto- what? <laughs> I'm like, you want food? You want soup? He's like, no, stow. And I was like, I have I have no idea what you're talking about. And he put his little hands on his hips and he looked at me. And he's like, M R P X Q, Stow. Because he had heard his father and I spell things out. And I spent the most frustrating Half an hour offering this little boy everything under the sun, and I was ready to scream and cry and kick things because I was so frustrated. he finally grabbed me by the hand and he led me over, and we had bar stools, and on top of the bar was the toy that he wanted, so Stowe was a stool he wanted to get up on the stool, which he wasn't allowed to do by himself and get his toy and For me, it kind of clicked at that moment of oh, (laughs) I kind of get it. I I understand now when you don't have the language, you don't have the skills to communicate, and you don't have the understanding what the other person is. And I like to think it actually made me a lot better of a person, a lot better of a parent. Uh, My patience increased a million times with my college students and with my kids, because it finally, the lesson finally kicked in of you don't actually know what's going on. You know, I have a student coming to class who may have just had a, you know, domestic dispute with their partner, or I have a student coming to class who hasn't eaten all day. So you don't get to sit in a place of judgment anymore, because when when it was flipped on me and I was frustrated and helpless, it was that lesson of, oh, okay, MRPXQ, still got it.
0: Absolutely wonderful uh, story. I can say that I've had the exact same experience with my kids. <laughs> Uh, When they're toddlers, uh, there's nothing uh, that requires you to be more patient than trying to understand whatever they're saying. Well, definitely thank you for being here today. Uh, So today we were talking to Dr. Jennifer Fish Ferguson, Assistant Faculty of English in the School of Arts and Humanity. Our conversation was about intersectionality and any final words, Jennifer?
1: Thank you for having me. I loved the ability to come and uh, wax poetically about my thoughts.
0: Excellent. Thank you. And of course, uh, thank you for being here. My name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer.
1: For more information about our university, visit us at studyatapu.com. APU.
0: American Public University.